you're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Welcome back and Happy New Year, one and all. While we've been away, to quote Massive Attack, the big wheel did indeed keep on turning. So now it's catch-up time. First up, we're looking at the slew of shipping bottlenecks threatening global trade, including terrorist attacks on the approaches to the Red Sea and Suez Canal. Then we'll be casting our eye at the latest advances in box tracking. Not least an ongoing rollout by Nexiot and Hapag, Lloyd of tracking devices across the latter's global fleet of containers. We'll be asking what this means for the future of supply chain transparency, something that many shippers will no doubt be wanting more of as we start 2024 amid mounting uncertainty. Joining me today are the Lodestar's Charlie Bartlett, Nexiot CEO Stefan Kalman, Olaf Habert, Director of Container Operations at Hapag Lloyd, and the inimitable and irreplaceable Zenitor Chief Analyst. It's Peter Sand. Some shippers some smaller shippers, some niche uh, shippers, some with goods that really depends on specific seasons are hardest hit right now. But in general terms, nobody comes free from a, a supply chain disaster like the one that we are watching right now. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Happy New Year and best wishes for 2024 to all of you. As trailed, we're covering a lot today, but before we start, a quick reminder, you can find the Lodestar podcast on all platforms and on the lodestar.com. Please subscribe, like, and follow. Now, later, we'll be looking forward to what will be new in logistics technology in 2024 with the Lodestar's very own Charlie Bartlett. I'll also be exploring the latest big step in container tracking with Hapag Lloyd and Nexius. But first up, We're going to get an update on shipping disruption and what all this is doing to freight rates. And who else could give more than Peter Sand, Chief Analyst at Zenita. Welcome back, Peter, and a Happy New Year to you. And a very Happy New Year to you too, Mike, and and all listeners uh, tuning in at at this early hour in 2024, because we already got a lot to talk about. We certainly have. Where else can we start? It's the Red Sea. We've got Houthi attacks from Yemen uh, prompting mass diversion of container ships around the Cape of Good Hope to avoid the Suez Canal. Is this the biggest supply chain disruption we've seen since COVID messed up supply chains, would you say, Peter? Little leading question for you to start the new year. Mike, of course, the uh, the, the disruptions that uh, in particular container shipping liner companies are facing right now in the Red Sea area and the um, Mandab El Bap Strait to the to the south, it's a very very ugly showcase of geopolitics basically going wrong again, and we are seeing a massive exodus of container uh, services that used to transit this area now going around the Cape of Good Hope. So it's really, I mean, one one easy to understand gauge of the significance of this is when you look at the Zenitas platform and you can see rates on a key trait that is disrupted by this Far East, any place in the Far East, going into the Met and also North Europe, almost up by 100% over the past three weeks. So it's a, it's definitely the biggest disruption we've seen since COVID. And, and there are similarities, although to ever given, same, same, but still very different in, uh, say, what's causing this and how do we resolve it in the end? The reference, the Ever Given there, meaning the ship, the Ever Given, which blocked up the Suez Canal during the global COVID-19 pandemic, which resulted in the Suez Canal closing for six days and had a domino effect across supply chains for weeks and months later. Peter, how much of the global fleet is now tied up sailing around the Cape? And what does this mean if it continues for that supply 
demand balance in 2024, which everyone expected excess supply, didn't they? I'm assuming this swallows up that excess that had been pushing freight rates down in, in sort of the last part of 23. Well, I'm, I'm sure that uh, that carriers can, can work their magic either way they want to also uh, during uh, times like this. Because if you put a quite a simple measurement to it, you could fit anywhere between a million and a half and two million into all the trades that currently go via the Suez Canal if they need to go round the Cape of Good Hope. So that's one measurement for you if this becomes a full blockage for container shipping. But also putting that into perspective, wasn't that exactly or more or less the amount of new tonnage coming on stream in 2023? You're right, at a point in time when demand didn't grow. So there is a crunch, there is a squeeze, but I would say it's not like the world of shippers or carriers are going to scream, we are short of capacity. It is a manageable situation, but of course there is a lot of, say, nasty domino effects on this. There's a lot of higher costs related to it. And there's also these knock-on effects from trades that are not directly impacted by this event, but simply the knock-on effects from capacity now being redeployed from cargo, perhaps also finding other ways, or from, from some shippers all of a sudden going ocean air for some goods. Uh, that, that can also, say, reshuffle what was on the cuts going into 2024. I must say that, that it's some firework that we uh, that we didn't really anticipate, but but we saw it with a slight burner already back in, uh, in late November. And now we've just recorded the 24th incident last night in the Red Sea. So uh, it's definitely heat on. Uh, and even though we have Operation Prosperity Guardian working now, it's not really making the safe passage that everybody wanted to happen very soon, uh, yet at least. As you say, those latest attacks on the 2nd of January, as we're talking on, on the 3rd. As you reference there, Peter, things are getting more expensive to ship. Can you put some numbers on those spot freight rate increases we've seen in recent weeks, please? And, you know, if you want to make some forecasts about where rates might go from here, please do proceed with as much reckless bravery as you can muster. I may not be the most brave in the industry on that regard uh, because uh, I don't believe in bravery. I believe in uh, insights and uh, extending what you know about the market into what may come about. But I can at least start with saying three weeks ago, Senator basically also went out saying that, okay, during times like this, spot rates, of course, do have the potential of jumping by as much as 100%. Fast forward, we are already there now. So looking at the, the rest of January and also into Chinese Lunar New Year, which is just about to, to happen, which is the mini peak of the container shipping industry. We may even see a doubling once again. If we look at the rates into North Europe from the Far East, we're just shy of, of $3,000 right now and just shy of $4,000 into to the Met. And again, as I said before, it's a doubling already on the short term. So don't be that surprised if you get another flurry of surcharges thrown at you from uh, from the carriers do realize of course if you're a shipper everything is up for negotiation regardless of the course or the root cause of, of the situation but rates seems to go only one way as long as it uh, well the situation is so rich of uncertainty and strikes or at least attempts to strike is still ongoing. We've seen Maersk, we've seen Hapagloid going out, extending their pauses for another week or so. And that, of course, adds to the inefficient deployment of capacity and higher rates in essence. So, of course, in due time, we will also see 
a knock-on effect on the long-term rates. Peter, around now uh, is when a lot of shippers are negotiating Asia-Europe long-term contracts with carriers. Does all this uncertainty leave those talks in limbo? I trust and hope that a lot of shippers and a lot of contracts were signed before really shit hits the fan in middle of December. Uh, we know from history and from our own scenario uh, data that uh, that January is, is really where a lot of contracts do come into force on a key trade uh, like this for East to Europe. We also have a lot of contracts coming into force on April as well as July, simply because of the way that uh, shippers also procure freight. They don't necessarily all go out with year-long service agreements. They either have a, a rolling index link or they do on a quarterly basis. So obviously, if you did sign your one-year contract earlier in this crisis, say going back to November or December, obviously there may be added surcharges on some of that. We have seen carriers go out basically calling for bills of lading clauses that are, that will allow them also to pass on extra cost on this. But of course, if your base rate is fairly fixed on a long-term service contract, you will not be faced by the full brute force of what is happening right now on the spot market. But I would anticipate soon to see, and, and that of course, when we have a doubling of the spot rates, there will be an instant also knock-on effect on the long-term rates. So expect those two to start climbing again following what we have seen, at least from what was signed in and coming into force in December, somewhat of a multi-year low level in December, but that corner has, has surely turned with the most recent uh, event. As you mentioned earlier, Peter, we've got factory closures in February for Chinese New Year. How are carriers planning or, or scheduling for the coming months? And what does this mean for shippers trying to organize around inventory levels? Uh, maybe more pertinently, will the shops be stocked for Valentine's Day? I fear they will, actually. There is definitely a season to either hit or miss. And uh, and coming up, of course, for the whole of the Western world, Valentine's Day in, in February, right? Either you have goods for Valentine's Day or you don't. So if you have your goods shipped on some of those services that all of a sudden find a longer way, adding up to 10, 14 days perhaps of transit times, that can be super business critical. And I think it's also fair to say that we have seen some of the smaller uh, shippers with goods like this already in transit really crying foul and really crying out their eyes because of this massive disruption. I mean, you could do very little to avoid this. I mean, the escalation was quite fast. You may have your drawer full of contingency plans to handle something that looked like this, but not at the scale of this. The magnitude is, uh, is a little bit mind-blowing, right? And the force or the pace of it, I mean, carriers literally from the very, well, following this mid-December weekend, that was where multiple rockets and missiles were fired at container ships. Some got hit also. You saw a massive rerouting at that point in time. It's still what we're facing right now. So obviously, some shippers, some smaller shippers, some niche uh, shippers, some with goods that really depends on specific seasons are hardest hit right now. But in general terms, nobody comes free from a, a supply chain disaster like the one that we are watching right now. We saw during the pandemic that a major disruption such as this really threw supply chains out of sync very quickly. One result of that, of course, was equipment and ships ended up being in all the wrong places. And this resulted in congestion shortages of boxes on a localized level. Are you seeing any signs of similar patterns emerging now? 
Not yet. I think it's a short answer. We have seen a almost fully completed, say, relocation of the equipment that was uh, at uh, at shortage uh, during the the COVID years. So in in that sense, it's too early to call a shortage on equipment a problem uh, right now. But then again, if this drags on, we see no immediate resolve to the current situation. So you can easily imagine months to pass before we get something like the next normal, some something that looks like I say reinstated safe passage through the Red Sea, right? So in due time, I mean, if it drags on, there will be an extra need to ensure that uh, that equipment is available. But at the current time, I think uncertainty is the one thing that may also push rates up for equipment and may also prompt carriers to say relocate equipment faster than uh, than they would otherwise do as a part of their contingency plans to deal with this new situation. When we've had disruptions in the past, we've seen some shift of cargo from ocean to sea air or overland or pure air cargo. Zenitor, is your air freight data showing any signs of a shift like this thus far, or are you expecting something like that to happen? I think you referenced it earlier. Yeah, obviously it's one thing that we follow quite closely, but there hasn't been a significant effect on air yet. I don't think it's because it's too early, uh, but but simply uh, due to the fact that air freight is definitely also full of capacity, even though we are running on window schedules for air freight right now, there hasn't been a massive development in terms of, of rates for air cargo. We did see uh, say a significant uptick in rates in November and December, but now not at the moment, not something that you can connect to the disruption in Red Sea. But then again, hey, we're talking early January. If we talk late January and the squeeze on some goods and supplies for Valentine's Days and also in the lead up to Chinese Lunar New Year, I think we should expect to see some uptick also on this. And not only because shippers may go for ocean air a combination a product pushed for by the freight forwarders, but but certainly also just because of the, the situation of longer transit times. If you have time-sensitive goods, you've got nowhere else to go but airborne. Suez obviously isn't the only big shipping story at the moment. We heard last year about dry water levels on the Panama Canal because of droughts due to El Nino in that fourth quarter when it was actually supposed to be the, the wet season in Panama. It's now supposed to be the dry season in Panama, but we had some rain in December. What's the situation at the moment there, Peter? Well, fortunately, we got a bit of rain during uh, December, and, and that prompted the Panama Canal authorities to uh, to adjust their guidance in terms of uh, the capacity for, uh, for January and, and February, uh, not onwards, but, but so far. They had uh, announced by end October a gradual reduction of capacity going down to 18 transits in February. That, unfortunately, is now held at, I think, 24 or 22, something like that, at least not at the very low end of the scale. And that's due to some water coming from the skies into the watershed of, of the Panama Canal. But we're still almost six feet below where we should otherwise be at this point in time, because as you mentioned, Mike, this is normally where the dry season starts and where the watershed is filled up following half a year of wet season. But we really didn't get the wet season. So let, allow me to, to sound like a broken record. This is something that we as Zanetta have, have foreseen to impact the year of 2024 more or less at a full extent. And we did so half a year ago when it was all in the making that a linear year was about to show its ugly face. And, uh, and I'm afraid we, we still see that. And carriers, of course, fortunately, have found that information 
usable in terms of planning well ahead. We've seen many carriers uh, taking out services from Panama, from Far East to U.S. East Coast. Often any carrier goes uh, for, if they have five services on, on a trade like that, three of them goes via Panama, two via Suez. Uh, we saw a carrier like Yangming already back in November say, take all services out of Panama and deploy them on, on Suez Canal. Uh, I think it's still too early to say what the Yangming uh, may have, say, undone following the most recent disruptions, but at least we know from another carrier, Hapag Lloyd, that some of the same are now bringing ships back to the Panama Canal. So it may be a little bit of blessing in disguise that the Panama Canal is not cutting all the way down daily transits to 18, but only somewhere between 22, 24, and container shipping still receiving some sort of preferred treatment, right? So that's at least dending a bit of the impact that's otherwise really bad day for the global maritime shortcuts and, and choke points. I'm sure those container shipping line network planners are earning their crust right now because with two canals really struggling, you know, the two key arteries of global trade, things are changing every day. And I appreciate you making some forecasts today because it's a very difficult situation at the moment to read. Finally, and it seems ridiculous that we're talking about this last, essentially the most significant regional green shipping regulations ever seen have now entered force. This is the EU's emissions trading system. This is a market-based regulation that sets a cap on allowed emissions and covers all vessels listing EU ports. Is the implementation of ETS going smoothly? And how are these changes looking from a shipper perspective, Peter? I think everyone is looking in a different direction now when, when they're looking at rates. Because what may seem like not only, say, randomly calculated rates from carriers uh, for EU ETS surcharges, ranging from uh, 10 euros per FEU to uh, to $100 per, per FEU on more or less same trade, but different carrier. They all got their eyes on something else. And, and even $100 may seem like a small ask right now when you see rates doubling in, uh, in only three weeks. But without doubt, I think it remains a bargaining question. It remains something that carriers, of course, want to implement as a natural element of the base rate when they are uh, signing a service contract and also spot contracts. But I mean, connecting the dots also with what we talked mostly about here today, the Suez Canal, I mean, you're adding three and a half thousand miles to more or less several trades every day uh, from Far East into North Europe. So some of those earlier assessed surcharges for UETS may end up being, uh, well, too low in the end because you're burning way more fuel now going into EU from the Far East, going around the Cable Good Hope than you would via the Suez Canal. So, uh, so I think the attention and the heat from EU ETS uh, haggling and, and bargaining and, and bringing into the negotiations between carriers and shippers has all but gone now, but it will surely be back also. And, and I think the most professional logistics providers also from, from shippers and freight forwarders they are suddenly aware of the fact that uh, the UETS is a, is a gradual implementation also. So you need to fight this now in order to avoid what will otherwise be like a, a surcharge that is, uh, say, that have tripled in size two years from now when it's fully implemented. Next up, we have Olaf Habert, Director of Container Operations at Hapag Lloyd, and Stefan Kalmund, CEO of Nexiot. They'll be talking about a very relevant topic right now, container tracking and supply chain transparency. But until next time, Peter Sand, Chief Analyst at Zenita, thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. 
I've been covering container shipping for, I don't know, probably too many years almost. But during that time, Nirvana for shippers and also for many carriers has been trying to get to a place where they know in real time where the box is or where the cargo is. And two companies that have actually made some progress on this, I'm delighted to invite to the Lodestar podcast right now. First up, I'd like to welcome the Director of Container Applications at Hapag Lloyd. It's Olaf Habers. Hello, Olaf. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for coming on, Olaf. And uh, joining him for this session is Stefan Kalman, CEO of Nexius. Welcome, Stefan. Hey, Mike. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Stefan. Olaf, um, if we can start with you first. Lots of carrier customers listen to this podcast, and they've been calling for real-time monitoring of their cargo for many years. Can you explain briefly how Hapag Lloyd Search has developed over the years when you've been looking for solutions in this area? And then we can maybe move on to your agreement with Nexia a little bit after that. Yeah, Hapag Lloyd uh, started to look into this topic of, of real-time monitoring for cargo, I think 2017-ish. And back then, there was reefer monitoring was, uh, was the topic to go at, which we did. Uh, we just did decide in 2018 to equip all of our reefer container fleet with uh, monitoring devices. And that was a, a really good learning ground for us. And I mean, everybody who knows uh, shipping knows that reefer transportation, the, the temperature-sensitive cargo is a natural, uh, interesting ground for container tracking for data because you can monitor the temperature and whether the cold chain is actually intact. So that's where we started, where we today have all of the fleet equipped and have some successful use cases running. And that for us um, was a good yeah, learning experience. And then we always said equipping the rest of our container fleet, which is the majority for every carrier out there, we have way more, about 10 times as much standard containers as reefer containers. And um, we always said it's not a question of if we're doing it, but just a question of when. So pretty quickly after the start of the reefer project, we started to look into dry container technologies and, and what do you need and what do you want there? And uh, eventually, uh, I still remember that, that we made a pitch here internally to, to the strategy board and they were looking to, to equip maybe 100,000 containers with tracking devices and then you know take a year or so to learn how it goes, what to do. And we've been working on that with Nexio as well already and then in the strategy discussion was actually a point where somebody said okay but why aren't we doing this for all containers from the start and i mean for me this was great right it was like okay sure what why not i mean there's lots of reasons why you should do it full fleet especially in container shipping which is built around standardization everything working the same so it's much better to have everything equipped than just a few and yeah then we went out uh, to find partners that we knew or wanted to get closer with and eventually we uh, we went ahead and now we are in the game of equipping all of our containers and uh, providing data to our customers very soon. So just to clarify, so you started out in the reefer business. Um, I guess there was a cost element to this, but now you're going to get all of your boxes, your entire fleet fitted with devices purely just from Nexius. Is that right? And can you tell us a little bit more about what these devices do and what what's the total number of boxes we're talking about? Yeah, so we um, we have a, a fleet that's currently about 3 million TEU, uh, 20-foot equivalent units in size. That's approximately 1.8 million boxes that need a device. And there's about 150,000 of those are reefers, uh, which we have been equipping with a company called Globe Tracker out of, uh, out of the US, uh, as well as also with a couple of other technologies uh, that are now coming in. And then on the dry container side, which is a 
a roughly 1.5 million boxes in total. We've been equipping a large majority of those with Nexo devices and also with a second partner there. So we are in, I would say, in a multi-sourcing position, selecting a little bit of uh, different partners here to grow with. And we are, at the moment, we've crossed the 1 million mark. So we are in the seven digits of installed equipment now, and we want to wrap up the rollout program. So our full fleet, we want to have the rollout completed by mid of 2024. How does this work for Hapag Lloyd from an operational point of view, having all of the entire fleet networked, so to speak? We're at the beginning of it, right? So um, we have um, lots of plans what to do with it, but we now having more than a million now equipped. Uh, of course, we're starting to realize things. So you mentioned the reefers before. There is, of course, operational things that we do there. So we have introduced a smart PDI to our fleet, which means we're using data to predict the health of reefer machinery, and then we decide whether we need to do an inspection or not. That is good for our customers as well, because big boxes becoming available quicker, especially in reefer seasons. We don't have to wait for a PDI slot, but we can decide is this good to go. And then, of course, there's a product as well for customers to buy. And uh, we've seen great return on that and a great response on that. So we're, we're pushing that. On the dry container side, um, I think we have to see what will really be the use cases that turn out with the game changers in the end. Right now, we're making very good experience with using the GPS data in particular to understand what is happening in the inland with our containers, right? So Habak Lloyd's inland share, where we are actually doing the pre and on carriage for our customers is about 20% globally, uh, which is good. But it also means that 80% of the cargo is moved in the inland, meaning before and after the port without actually our involvement, but with our containers. And if we better understand how this cargo moves, we can, for instance, decide, is it okay to call London Gateway or Southampton? Does that make a bit difference for customers um, driving to and from the port? Or can we can decide, do we actually need another depot in Liverpool or are we fine just having one north of London because we actually know where our customers take the containers and put them? And I think with these kind of knowledge, we will be able to create advantages on an operational uh, efficiency side. We're starting to see that now. And I think the industry, everybody knows that, is going from very, very good years on a revenue side for the carriers into a more normal cycle. So, of course, there's uh, prices have been normalized and we are looking into a period of cost saving and efficiency gains. And this is where we think as a first mover, having equipped our container fleet, there's actually the advantage. It sounds almost like you're dipping your toe into end-to-end logistics there. Is that, have I just got a scoop, Olaf? <laughs> no, I, I think that I want to make clear that's not to be confused with with what some of our competitors are doing in terms of, you know, offering much more inland and warehousing and all these activities. But for us, it's more about understanding and then being a better partner to our customers who are, actually have probably good reasons to operate their inland business. Oh, uh, well, I had to ask, didn't I? Uh, Stefan, <laughs> please, uh, can you explain how this technology works? How, how are the devices installed and, and what technology are you employing on them, particularly from a, from a user's point of view? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you said it also yourself, you know, most logistical companies have obviously always been able to track their ships, but not their shipping containers. And the reason for that is they're boxes of steel. There's no external power associated to it. And, and if, I think, you know, we've all seen the risks of the supply chain, you know, when ships couldn't unload the cargo in Long Beach or couldn't pass the Panama Canal or the traditional silk routes for Russia didn't work. And you could never really know where a container is. And there is no 
simple fix. You cannot just attach, you know, an Apple AirTag, unfortunately, like we have done it with our suitcases during the pandemic to monitor a container. But every device you build, and this is the challenge, has to survive under the most extreme environmental conditions because, you know, the container could be exposed to the heat of Saudi Arabia or the freezing temperature of Sweden, or it could be sitting with the humidity in Singapore or have the salt water of the South Atlantic Ocean. So this is, you know, challenge number, challenge number one, uh, challenge number two, any device you build needs to be legally approved for every country, every port, every industrial site in the world where you potentially handle also dangerous goods. So what we've done, we wanted to really create a GPS tracking device that survives in all those harshest environments. Uh, we also wanted to create tracking device that then survives more than eight years with no external power source. You know, once you attach something to a container, there's no way that you can ever catch the container again for a couple of years, probably. So the battery needs to last for a very long time. But most important, we wanted to also build a tracking device that sends a lot more than just the GPS coordinates, uh, but contextualizes all the information. So it collects everything that happens surrounding a container, whether it's a shock or a delay or people tempering with the door. And we might be coming to that a little bit later. So what it does actually, that technology then turns a container just from a box of steel into a smart container in a couple of minutes. And we can talk about the installation if you want to, uh, but, but what it mainly does, it preserves today's infrastructure. You know, Hapakloy didn't want to buy another 1.5 million shipping containers, but it wanted to very simply retrofit today's infrastructure. Well, just please do explain how these devices are fitted. I mean, it sounds like a massive process, but presumably you've got it down to quite a small or quick process so it doesn't disrupt operations. Yeah, so first of all, it starts with the capability to produce a lot of devices. So we created almost like three, you know, what I would call gigafactories, one sitting in, in Europe, one in Asia, one in North America, where we produce more than 130,000 devices a month. Because, you know, if you want to roll out quickly, and Hapak's goal was to roll out in less than 18 months, if you want to roll out an entire fleet that quickly, you have to produce massive quantities. Second of all, you need to do and think in global rollouts also. It doesn't, it's not good enough to just produce devices in a single continent, but you actually have to import them to the most exotic countries in the world from Vietnam, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, you know, Jebel Ali, India, all the places where there's big terminals. So Hapak and, and we together educated around 450 terminals and ports around the world to be able to do those installations. And then the third point being is, if you install more than a million devices, it makes an enormous difference whether it takes five minutes or minutes. So the challenge was, how can we actually, you know, clean the surface of container, attach a device to it, take a picture, pair it, and get the dot on the map in less than a minute? And, and we successfully, you know, accomplished the, the, the task. But it took a lot of change management, a lot of training, a lot of trying out to create that kind of a sophisticated process. Let's say I'm a cargo owner, I'm a shipper, I'm a forwarder. What's new for me here? Are we talking about container level visibility? I think we are, rather than cargo or pallet level visibility, which is what a lot of shippers ask for. Is that what we're saying? Or tell me what I'm getting. We're getting a little bit of both. So let's stay on that asset level first. And, and Olaf touched on that earlier. For the first time, you have door-to-door 
monitoring independent from the transport mode because the device automatically detects whether the container is sitting on a ship or whether it's being moved to a trailer or whether it's being moved on a barge or on a train. And then with that automatic detection, and it continues to learn for AI and ML and machine learning, it automatically adapts the sending frequency. If you're sitting in the middle of the ocean, maybe a heartbeat once a day is good enough also as an information for an ETA update. Whereas if you're sitting on the trailer and you're, you know, you're approaching the last mile, then you maybe want to have 15 minutes interval. So from an asset level, track to track. From what we're going to be seeing in the future is that the electronic information also on a shipment level will be really relevant for port authorities. And we've just announced this week also a partnership with Deloitte and Pairpoint to establish for port authorities, you know, what we call green lanes. So shipping containers were down to the cargo level. You can actually prove that that cargo has not been tempered with. There's no illicit trafficking. The door hasn't been opened at two o'clock in the morning in a place where it shouldn't have been open, those containers will be faster processed than containers where there is no digital audit trail. And then therefore, it you know, certainly affects the shippers, the beneficial cargo owners, because those shipments being handled by Hapak Lloyd, where Hapak can actually prove the full audit trail, then will be faster processed than a traditional shipping container where there's no digital information associated with it. Thank you, Stefan. Olaf, if I could bring you back in again, please. Um, a couple of questions from what Stefan said. Is this something that your customers have been asking for? I guess, is this something you will charge them for? Uh, and a secondary point, is this the first step in a, in a longer process in terms of how you provide more visibility? This is uh, certainly the start of a journey and not the end point of it. Equipping the containers, all 1.5 million of them with tracking devices is a means to an end. So it's uh, very exciting for us, of course, that also talk about how the technology is being installed. It means it's a massive effort to do more than 1 million installs on a fleet like ours in, in less than a year and to complete fleet in 18 months. But yes, we're doing this because our customers have clearly voiced several times that this is something they want. Now, the follow-up question, which you also asked, and it needs to be that, is okay, but what price is anybody willing to pay for it? And that is certainly where this is becoming a game-changing question because it's a significant investment, even for a carrier that has you know good revenues in the past. We have to be careful what we spend and invest our money on. But for Hapag Lloyd, we believe being the first mover in this, that we can provide for customers and want additional quality, we can provide additional value. And yes, that does come at additional cost. Right? We have, by the way, made on the reefer product very good experience with making this available at a price tag because it does trigger that customers are interested in it that see the value as well. Right? So you can offer it as a freebie, as an add-on, um, but then it just it's just that. It's just a freebie and add-on and it doesn't make people actually see the value. So a little bit of price tag helps here. And can I get any idea of how much? <laughs> Fair question. Uh, I think that's to be seen in the market, but uh, considering what visibility and tracking costs are, are today, I th uh, probably it's going to be a small double-digit US dollar amount uh, per box per transport, but pricing has not decided yet. Okay, thank you for that. Another question, actually, 
Presumably, if you're better able to track your entire fleet of boxes, that gives you these efficiency gains. Is there a carbon footprint payout as well? Is there a benefit there? Well, at this point, I can say that I certainly believe it is, but I cannot pinpoint it yet. I mean, as every shipping company, we are trying to lower our carbon footprint. We just last week, we shared an idea to maybe put sails back on our vessels, which me being a sailor, I would personally very much support. And another thing on the way to carbon neutrality is the one step you have to take is to better understand your business. So um, while, of course, our biggest footprint is the vessels and, and operating the vessels, we have a lot of containers and we want to also help our customers to make smarter choices, in particular on the inland transports. One thing, for instance, where we think there is uh, some carbon footprint reduction possible is that when we understand where to in the inland our boxes go, then we can potentially in future match customers between import and export. So that will reduce the amount of empty truck drives that one has to do to pick up a container from a depot or return an empty one. If we can just say, hey, don't go back to the depot, but five minutes down the street is the next export customer. You can drop the container there and then we, each of us saves trip money and especially CO2. Stefan, is this an exclusive deal with Hapag Lloyd or are you expecting other carriers to be banging on your office door demanding more Nexiat devices on their containers? Well, it's certainly a, a privileged relationship because I think together we've been a driving force in industry. I mean, we were the first ones to introduce with Hapag Lloyd certified devices. You know, we were the first ones to handle together more than a million smart containers. You know, we created together the largest connected fleet of smart containers uh, in the world, sending billions of data points, et cetera. So it's certainly very privileged and we're going to be the first ones also doing a door cargo monitoring together. Exclusive in a sense that we have a head start together, but the rest of the industry has been watching this very closely. It's fair to say that we're testing with many players around the world, but this is also of an interest for the industry. It will help to drive down you know, insurance premiums and avoid accidents, et cetera. So this is certainly something the, the industry will be adopting. Yeah, and maybe I can add to that because, of course, uh, we are doing this also as a first mover because we strongly believe in it. But that also means we believe that it has an advantage for the industry overall and it can make everybody smarter and hence also help everybody improve their operations and their footprint. I think the real head start in the end will not come from having devices installed. That is something that, that others can do as well. But it comes from working with the data understanding it and then making value out of it. Right? So that is where the, the advantage will come from. That's what Habaglot is working towards to provide also to its customers you know, data, but maybe better data and better services like ETA, like the green lanes and customs that Stefan talked about, like door opening, these kind of things. We That's what we're working on now to stay ahead. Well, I hope I can get you both back on to tell me how you're progressing, especially from the middle of 2024 onwards when we'll, everything will be in, in place. Next up, I'll be discussing this initiative and what 2024 has in store for logistics tech with the Lodestar's very own technology guru, Charlie Bartlett. But for now, Olaf Haber, Director of Container Applications at Hapag Lloyd, and Stefan Kalmund, CEO of Nexiat. Thank you very much for joining me today on the Lodestar podcast. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Mike. Very much appreciate it. Okay, I'd uh, now like to welcome to the Lodestar podcast our very own technology reporter. It's Charlie Bartlett. How are you, my friend? 
I am very well, thank you. I'm looking forward to uh, a great 2024 and uh, looking forward to seeing what that will bring us. Charlie, over 2023, you've obviously been looking at everything to do with technology, particularly in the maritime sphere. How significant is this Nexius deal with Hapag Lloyds in terms of what it says about the, the two companies, but also about the progress that we're seeing in terms of container shipping cargo visibility? I mean, I, I know I'd quite like to know what route my book boxes was being shipped over the last few weeks with all the disruption that we've seen. Uh, yes, quite. Well, of course, it's a very big deal from the carrier's point of view. Hapag Lloyd is potentially exposing itself by offering this greater transparency particularly with the kind of disruptions we've been seeing over the last few years and indeed the last few months, it's probably quite a nice thing to have for shippers. I think it owes a lot to consumer pressure shippers themselves are facing. You can certainly ask questions about the sort of morality of things like next day delivery and whatnot, but the outcome of all that is that people want their treats, they want them now, and if they don't have them now, they want to know where the hell it is. So an analogy I like to use is in the old days, you'd phone the restaurant up, You'd order a curry and then either your dad would have to go and drive there and pick it up. Or if you were close enough, one of the staff might drive it over and drop it off. But you'd get it when it was ready and you'd have basically no idea when it was coming. Uh, so you'd be twitching the curtain to see if the driver had arrived. Now that space has been marketized. And so we have Deliveroo, we have Uber Eats, whatever, all competing in that space. And you can see where your driver is on a map. And to extend the metaphor maybe a bit too far, you can figure out if your food will still be hot when it gets here, or if you're going to need to fire up the microwave. So it's much the same principle. It allows shippers to make more granular decisions, intelligent decisions about where their cargo is going. And as Olaf mentioned in the interview, it allows Hapag Lloyd to do the same in the long run. To be cynical, they're probably not doing it just to be nice. It may be that they feel their hand has been forced because shippers are putting pallet level tracking devices in their containers. In fact, there may be several of them inside each Hapagloid container. They're fairly rudimentary now. They can measure temperature changes. They can quantify sort of knocks and uh, whatnot. So perhaps Hapagloid wants to be able to say to its customers, look, we're doing it. We've got your tracking info here, stop fussing. And of course, if something does go wrong, and there are good reasons why a carrier might want to be in charge of that information or at the very least have a copy of it. Thanks, Charlie. I'm, I'm sort of on my New Year diet here at the moment, but I'm actually, you've actually made me feel uh, quite hungry with that analogy. Um, why has it taken so long for our industry to get where we are now? It feels like we've been on this path for a, a long, long time. Yes, I think the main limitation is going to be or has been miniaturization, which is in turn a matter of cost. Because you need a huge number of these things, as Stefan mentioned. Um, I'm sure your listeners will be aware batteries are perhaps the biggest technological bottleneck we have. Everybody hates them. They're big and expensive, and they're not good long-term investments. They're usually the first thing to fail in your phone or your laptop or whatever. Right? So the manufacturers of these telemetry devices have had to work very hard on making them do what they have to do, record the points, they, the data points they need to make and phone home as little as possible. You're not just thinking about how long the battery will take to run out of juice, but you're also thinking about um, how the batteries are losing a little bit of their health every time they discharge. So you want to make sure that they discharge as little as possible, which means that you need to be quantifying the, the limits of how little information you can send while still being useful. But in terms of, in terms of actually like IOT connectivity, 
the uh, bandwidth is not a problem. I spoke to a VSAT provider recently. VSAT's what we call broadband on a ship, basically. And they told me that data generated by these tools is uh, ones and zeros. It's minimal. It's bytes at a time. They're busy trying to provide the bandwidth so that seafarers can video call with their families or big software updates can be exchanged between ship and shore in the middle of the ocean or what have you. So there's really no bottleneck in terms of IoT connectivity. It's trivial for them. It really is much more about the uh, power usage. Charlie, uh, are we seeing any other major moves in terms of initiatives to bring more transparency to the cargo owner or, or the ocean supply chain? Or are there any other stories or tech that you're particularly excited about in this area in 2024 or even further beyond in, on the horizon? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, we've got pallet level tracking, which it'll be good, interesting to see how that develops, almost as I would say, sort of in competition with uh, container tracking. But I think shipping is probably still going to remain a fairly opaque business for a while. Being from a purely maritime background, I can tell you a lot of companies have been selling shipping access to more and more granular data. In the end, they still just rely on new known reports a lot of the time, which is when a, the captain makes a manual inventory of fuel levels, speed, whatnot, and then sends that off in an email. So very basic stuff. You can spend as much money as you like on measuring thousands of data points, but you've got to have a robust architecture for sort of decrypting what those data points actually mean as well. Otherwise, it's a waste of time and money. So I'll be very interested to see whether an industry with millions of IoT containers milling around can respond faster to situations that challenge just-in-time supply chains, like never given COVID, the Red Sea crisis, or what have you. There will also be implications for cargo theft and whatnot as well, and dangerous goods as well, which I think was alluded to in the interview. And maybe the consumer will get a better understanding of shipping's role in their treats getting as well, as in how, how shipping compares with, uh, with other transport industries, especially with everyone talking about reshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring, whatever. It's good to see how connected containers can give us the macro level data to facilitate a more intelligent supply chain overall. Maybe it'll amount to more than just chasing the most dirt cheap labor costs around the world, wherever they may be. Thanks for, for that, Charlie. Just pivoting slightly, I know you were covering out all of the events over at COP28 held in Dubai at the end of last year. What were your main takeaways from that event in terms of what shippers and forwarders should know? I think I might be a bit too emotionally involved to answer that. You might want to find someone a bit more ambivalent about being underwater. <laughs> I think any effect from COP28 is going to be very difficult to quantify. They've just about managed to agree in principle that fossil fuels are causing climate change and that reducing them will mean less climate change, which rather begs the question of what they were doing at COPs 1 through 27, I think. The president of COP28 said that if we reduce fossil fuel extraction, we'll have to go back to living in caves, which gives you some idea of where he stands on the issue. I think to look for a more decisive effect, we're better off looking at the EU emissions trading system, ETS, which has just entered force. If it works out well, it might be the start of a global carbon credit scheme or even a carbon tax, which will certainly add significant costs for shippers. Interestingly, I believe China is demanding that ETS costs be rolled up into the base freight rate for China-Europe rather than levied by shipping lines as a surcharge. So I'll be interested to see the effect of that. One of the things about ETS that I do find really interesting is it's basically a nod to scope three emissions. 
which is where 99% of the juice really is. It's all very well saying my office runs on renewable energy, but where does your laptop, your chairs, your fleet vehicles, your ships, where do they come from? Unless they were handcrafted on Mount Olympus, they probably came from a coal-powered factory and they probably arrived on an oil-powered ship as well. But that also feeds into greater transparency and container tracking because potentially it allows people to see where, not only when their goods are arriving, but also where they're coming from as well. Charlie Bartlett, Lodestar Technology Reporter. Thanks for joining me today on the Lodestar Podcast. Pleasure as always, Mike, and uh, Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to everyone else out there. I'm sure 24 is going to be great. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.